So I, the first thing I have to say this morning is I feel a little bit awkward as I try to preach about this passage from John. It's funny, I feel um, the more I study God's Word and the more I study this particular part of God's Word, the, the crucifixion and the resurrection, the harder it becomes for me to put words to it. And it's funny, I feel sort of like a child trying to explain something that I've seen to an adult. Right now, Shalem, our son, he's two and a half, and there are times when he finds something or something amazing happens to him, and he tries to explain it to me. And I look at Tracy and I ask her, what did he just say? And she says, I don't know. I mean, it's, sometimes it's like he's, almost like he's trying to talk with a mouth full of marbles. And we try to understand what he said, and sometimes I feel like this when I try to explain the depth of what's happened here. Sometimes he, he gets frustrated with me because he keeps telling me and telling me. And I just say, Shem, I don't understand. What? So he takes his hands and he grabs my cheeks. He says, Dad! <laughs> I won't do that to you this morning. But I do want to at least say that we are in deep water here as we come to the crucifixion, as we come to Christ on the cross. It defies words. And it's hard for me. I feel like the more I talk about it, the more shallow the words become or the harder it becomes to describe it. So there's lots happening here in this passage. I mean, as you read through it, you're probably thinking, oh, what about this? And I see this connection and what Jesus is doing. And, and I felt a little bit overwhelmed, honestly, this week as I was studying. And, but the one thing that, that, stuck out, that stuck out to me or the part that I kept hearing again and again was this part between uh, verse 28 and 30. And there's three times where uh, the word um, telos, or one of the variations of it, basically completed or accomplished is mentioned. And I started thinking about this word accomplished and how Jesus says that it's been accomplished. And I began wondering about this. God, what has been accomplished here? Well, I realized that the first thing, and it happens as you start reading through this part of the gospel, that scripture has been accomplished. Three times it says this throughout this passage. I don't know if you caught each of the times, but it says so that, that scripture might be fulfilled or might be accomplished. So I began looking into this, and with the help of some other Christians, uh, guys I was reading, I began to see how Jesus accomplished the scriptures. The first thing that I realized that he accomplished, and there's a few connections as John retells the crucifixion, that there is this accomplishment of the Psalms. You see that the, well, let me back up just for a moment, that scripture, the Old Testament is largely divided up into three parts. The writings or the Ketavim, and then the prophets or the Nevaim, and then the Torah. These three parts of the Old Testament. And I see Jesus fulfilling each part. See, the Psalms that begin, that we see these connections. And I see John, as he's recalling, as he, maybe even as he's writing this gospel, as God's Spirit is with him, that he's recalling these things that Jesus did and that he said. And he said, I remember that from the Psalms, the songs that we sing as the people of God. I think of the first thing that comes to mind is Psalm 69, Psalm of David, where he talks about being persecuted. And he said, I had thirst, and they gave me wine vinegar, or wine, or excuse me, vinegar to drink. And how Jesus, when he said, I, am, I have thirst, or I'm thirsty, and they gave him wine vinegar to drink. Or the part of Psalm 34, where it says, the righteous man suffers many difficult things in his life, but God delivers him from each of them. He protects all of his bones. Not a one of them will be broken. 
I think John remembered this when the guards came to break the legs of those who were being crucified and they passed over Jesus. It's an interesting word that they passed over him because they didn't need to because he was already dead. Again, scripture fulfilled. There's this one scripture too, this one psalm that as you read through all three gospels, you'll see parts of it. Let me just read parts of it. It's Psalm 22. The psalmist says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, and I am not silent. Then it goes on to say, further down it says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. And then it goes on to say, Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men have encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. All the ends of the earth will be remembered and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. He will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. As you hear Psalm 22, did you see so many of the connections that are being fulfilled here at the cross? But not only does Jesus fulfill the Psalms, but he also fulfills the prophets. I think of of Zechariah. When it talks about in Zechariah uh, 2 or 10, sorry, but Zechariah where Jesus says that I I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. And when they look on me, the one who has been pierced, they will mourn like one mourns for an only child. They will grieve bitterly like one grieves, grieves for a firstborn son. Again, talking, making this connection with being pierced. And I think of Isaiah, the servant song in Isaiah. Many of you know this. It says that, see, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised up and highly exalted. And just as many were appalled at him because his appearance was disfigured beyond that of any person, because his form was marred beyond human likeness, so he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. What they have not seen, or sorry, what they have not been told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry grass. There was nothing, or his, he had no, no, uh, no beauty or majesty that would, that would attract us to him. Nothing about him that we should desire him. There's nothing about him that we should desire him. He was despised by men. Rejected. <coughs> A man of sorrow, familiar with suffering. Familiar with suffering. 
like one from whom men hide their faces. They don't even want to look at him. He was despised, and yet we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities, carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we have been healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has gone their own way. And the Lord has placed on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, but he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, like a Passover lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before his shears, he did not open his mouth. In oppression and judgment, he was led away. Who can speak of his descendants? He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence and there was no deceit found in his mouth, it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord was making his life a guilt offering, he would see his offspring and prolong his days, that the will of the Lord would flourish in his hands. And after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. My servant will act wisely. Because of his knowledge, my righteous servant will save many and bear their iniquities. Therefore, therefore, for this reason, I will sign him a portion with the great He will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life into death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for those for the transgressors. These are the words that Isaiah spoke centuries before Jesus. Some have even described this as the gospel according to Isaiah. These words that we see fulfilled in Christ. These words of God. So he fulfills not only the writings or the Psalms, but also the prophets and also the Torah. It's a bit more subtle, and there's some connections here with the lamb, and the lambs, when they eat the Passover, it's a perfect lamb with no bones, no bones broken. We see it here in Christ. See, by John's reckoning, Jesus died on the day of Passover, or when the Passover lambs were being slaughtered. So he becomes our Passover lamb. Jesus is the great Passover lamb. It's not surprising that John the Baptist, earlier in Jesus' ministry, said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Or that it was John himself, later when he was on Patmos, and he saw the vision in the throne room and the lamb who was slain. That Jesus has fulfilled the Torah. He has fulfilled all the scriptures. This helps us to remind us that God is in control here. This helps us to remember that this was not just some religious person who had 
made this new movement and it got away from him and he was crushed by it. That's not what happened here. We're reminded that God was involved in this. That God had been speaking of this for centuries before, had been planning this. And that he was bringing his salvation to his people by his way. So when Jesus said, one, that it was accomplished, I see one, that he accomplished the scriptures. What they spoke of, this servant who would come, this one who would be pierced for our transgressions. Jesus accomplished this. But as I was reading more and focusing on these passages, there's also a lot more that he accomplished. Now, it's interesting here that I think John's gospel is coming to this moment. Throughout, John has been talking, or Jesus has been talking about his hour, this hour of glory. This is the hour here at the cross. It will continue on through the resurrection. This is the moment John has been working us up to. And it's interesting, in Greek, it comes down to Jesus' final word, to tell us that. It's a Greek word that we translate as, it has been finished, or I think probably a better translation, it has been accomplished. Because it wasn't just over. It's not like it's just over. But Jesus is saying, I have accomplished it. It has been accomplished. So maybe we start thinking, well, what has he accomplished? And I know some of you have lots of answers here. Like you've been in church for a while and you have an understanding of what God has done, what Jesus did on the cross. But let me just line out a few more things, or just a few things here. The first is that he accomplished victory. Jesus defeated death. On the cross, death stung itself to death. Jesus overcame death on the cross. The death is no longer our last enemy. The last enemy that everyone faces is no longer something that we need to be afraid of. He has defeated death, and in Christ so have we. But he also has defeated sin and its hold on us, its grip on us. The prison we live in, the prison of our regret, the things that we've done that we wish we hadn't, even still, maybe years or decades later. He set us free from the prison of guilt, the ways we still beat ourselves up for things that we've done or said. He set us free from shame, things that we are ashamed of. He has thrown the doors open. So it's not surprising to me that when Jesus, when he came to preach his first sermon in Nazareth, he said, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed and to proclaim the sovereign year of the Lord. Jesus has set us free from the prison of our sin, of our brokenness. But he's also set us free. He's also had victory over Satan. It's true, there are still battles, but the war has been decided. We don't need to be afraid anymore. It's one of the things, I don't know if you've seen Mel Gibson's The Passion, that's one of the things that I remember about that is this image of, of his, his character of, of, this, of Satan that when Christ died on the cross, you see Satan not celebrating, but writhing in agony because he knew that he had been defeated. It was victory. 
So Jesus has accomplished this victory over sin and death and Satan. But he's also revealed himself to us and revealed who God is to us on the cross. As we read through the Old Testament, especially people who are kind of new to faith, they read through the Old Testament and they see, man, God is angry at times, a lot of times. And they struggle to see the love of God in the Old Testament. Trust me, it's there. It's there in spades. But sometimes people have a hard time seeing it. But it's on the cross, the Son of God, who sacrificed himself for us because of his love for us, because of the Father's love for us, that we see it. For just a moment, in just this vague way, we begin to see God's love for us, the sacrifice that he went to for our sake. We also see God's character. We see the character of God. A God who is humble. A God who didn't come to lord it over people, but to serve. Jesus spoke about this with his disciples. He said, I did not come to be served, but to serve. God did not come to demand more sacrifice from us, but to sacrifice himself for our sake. To demonstrate the glory of the upside-down kingdom. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God where the first shall be last and the last shall be first. On the cross, we see the character of God revealed to us. But as good as all this is, it's still not everything that he accomplished. Jesus accomplished more. How are you guys doing with this? You guys seem quiet today. Long night last night? Stick with me here. Jesus has accomplished more. He's accomplished so much more. He took our place. On the cross, he took our place. I can't help but hear the echoes of the words of Isaiah. When Isaiah said he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds, we have been healed. And maybe some of you are thinking, like, why did, why did Jesus have to do this for us? Like, I'm not that bad a person. Why did Jesus have to die for me? Well, it starts, it's a complicated question that we don't have a ton of time for this morning, but let me just say this, that God is just. God is a God of justice. And so God is angry at the things we've done, the the things that we've done to each other, things that we've said, the times that we've cheated each other. God is angry about this. He still loves us, but he's angry about what we've done. He's angry about the times when we know what God has called us to do, and yet we still insist on doing it our own way. So God can't just turn a blind eye to these things. He won't just turn a blind eye to these things. Imagine what it would be like, those of you who have kids, if you just, oh, I'm sure it's okay. If, you, if your kids did something wrong, really wrong, and you said, oh, it's, it's fine, I'm sure, it's, it's no big deal. Imagine what that child would grow up to be like. God loves us. So he's not just going to turn a blind eye. He wouldn't just let his children get away with murder. 
So God is just. And because of our sin, because of his holiness, he has to do something about it because we can't fix it ourselves. I know we'd like to think, oh, maybe it's not that big a deal. (laughs) Trust me, it is. When you're talking about a holy God, it is a big deal. But thankfully, we have Christ. Jesus has come. The Son of God sacrificed himself so that we could be made righteous as a covering for us in a way. See, that's what Jesus did. He reconciled us back to the Father. Restored us as children. I think of the story of the prodigal son. Many of you know this story about the son who came to his dad and said, Dad, I want all my inheritance now, which is basically in the Middle Eastern way of saying, Dad, I wish you were dead already because I want my money. And he went, and he went off to this faraway place. And he lived, this, this, he lived life, I mean, spent all the money on who knows what. And he was broke, and there was a famine in the land, and he was eating with the pigs, which to a Jewish family is a big deal. That's pretty low. It's about as low as you get. And he came back and said, you know what, my, my father's servants, at least they have food in a place. If I'm going to go back and just tell my dad I'm gonna be a, I'll be a servant. You don't have to, I won't be your son anymore, but just let me be a servant. So he comes back. And he hasn't even got to the, to the, like, he's still well down the road. And the father, who's been watching for him, jumps up and runs to him. Now, some of you may know a little bit about Near Eastern culture, but men of dignity don't run. They walk because it's undignified to run. But here's this father throwing dignity to the wind, pulling up his robe and running to his son. This is what Jesus has done for us. He's made this way back for us. He has reconciled us to the Father. As John talked about in the very beginning of his gospel, so that we might be called children of God. That we'd be restored as his children again. Jesus is the one sacrifice. He said it is accomplished. For all the for all the rams and all the, the oxen and all the, the bulls that they had to sacrifice, it's done. Jesus is the one sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one who has saved us. He is the one who has re- reconciled us, restored us to our Father in heaven. So we begin asking, what has Jesus accomplished here? He's accomplished the scriptures. He's accomplished this amazing act of salvation, accomplished victory. He's revealed to us his character and he has saved us. But here's the interesting thing. As I was reading more of this, the third time that it talks about being accomplished, it said that Jesus knew that everything had been accomplished or that it all had been worked out. That's fascinating to me because Jesus knew was happening. Jesus wasn't accidentally in Jerusalem and then ended up crucified. He went there on purpose for our sake, for our salvation. He entered in Jerusalem knowing full well that while people were, were swaying palm branches and saying, Hosanna, glory to the God in the highest, while they thought they were welcoming in their new king, Jesus knew that in a few days later that they would all have rejected him, abandoned him and that he would be on a cross crucified. In this, as we were working through through the season of Lent, we were talking or working through the passages of Jesus in the upper room with his disciples, his last sermon. And numerous times, Jesus talks about his hour, his hour of glory. 
referring to the cross and the resurrection, the empty tomb. These are the hours of glory. This is the greatest thing that God has ever done. Here at the cross, God has done his greatest thing, greater than creation, greater than than his covenant with Abraham or giving the law at Sinai or returning the exiles back to the land, greater than all of these things, God the Son has stood in our place and died that we might have life and life to its fullest. The thing that gets me as I work through this passage this week is how hard it was for the people to see that. I mean, think about it. Caiaphas, the high priest, the guy who's supposed to know what God is doing. Pilate, the the Roman leader. These guys conspiring together to get rid of this rebel leader, this religious upstart. Did they have any idea what they were doing? Did they have any idea that they were just bit players in God's great plan? That when they sent Jesus to the place called the skull, did they have any idea that it was the Lamb of God on the great altar, taking our place, reconciling us to God, redeeming us? Or what about Pilate with his sign, Jesus, the Nazarene, the King of the Jews? Did he have any idea what he was writing? It's interesting, because I think he did this to put the screws to the religious leaders. You guys are going to make me crucify this guy? Well, then I'm going to say he's the king of the Jews to shame you. But really, the joke's on him. It's interesting, as Dale Bruner, one of the guys I was, I was reading, he talks about this as the gospel according to Pilate. The truth that he unwittingly speaks, Jesus, the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Not only that, but he writes his gospel in tongues. He wrote it in Latin, in Greek, and Aramaic. So the whole world would know, here is the king of the Jews. Did he have any idea what he was doing? What about these guards, these four guards that divided up Jesus' clothes? Did they have any idea the scripture they were fulfilling? That they were a part of God's plan? Imagine this, four men casting lots to see who's going to win. Who's going to win this one garment? Playing this game on the ground while Jesus was crucified just a few feet above them on the cross. Did they have any idea what they were doing? As I start thinking about these guys, I start asking myself this, or asking us this as a church. Do we have any idea what Jesus has done? I know we catch glimpses of that at times. I know for sometimes there are these moments in our lives when it is the realest thing that we know. But I also know there are times when we talk about it a lot. That we talk about it so much that almost like the words lose their significance. Sometimes we begin to take it for granted that God the Father sent God the Son that he might die on a cross for us to give us life, to set us free from sin, to win victory over death and evil. Words just don't do it justice. This morning I pray for us 
I pray for us as a church that we would continue to be amazed by this. That when we come to these words, at one sense that they would comfort us, but in another sense that they would remind us of what God has done. That we would feel at a loss for words, that we would feel undone. That we would struggle to realize this amazing thing that God has done for us. That it is accomplished. That the scriptures have been accomplished. Jesus fulfills them. He's the one whom God has been talking about. And we know it by the words that he spoke in the past. We also know that Jesus has accomplished it. Accomplished these things that we never, it's impossible for us to even fully understand. But also he accomplished our salvation. Victory. Revealing his character. Salvation. When I think of these words, it is finished. I remember one sermon (laughs) from seminary where one of my professors, a New Testament professor, he said, he preached this whole sermon. He got to the very end and he said, Finished, accomplished for our sake. Amen.